So my family and some friends of us um, went through this long ordeal, and I call it a long, it's not an ordeal, but we watched Lord of the Rings, and then we said, okay, now we've got to watch the Hobbit trilogy. So then we set that aside, and so just, I think it was last night, we just finished up, you know, the Battle of the Five Armies, the last Hobbit installment, okay? And one particular character I was reminded of as I was just pulling the sermon together and such this morning and just kind of laying it out there, organized and such, was the, the elven king in Mirkwood whose name is Thranduil. Try to say that, Thranduil. Thranduil, Thranduil, yeah. Say that ten times fast, not right now. Wow, okay. Uh, Tolkien came up with some interesting, actually his, he actually is not a character in the, the Hobbit book I discovered. But Thranduil has lost his wife we don't know exactly how many years ago. His son's name is Legolas. You may remember Legolas from Lord of the Rings. And as you look at these two men, you can see a contrast, but also a comparison, just as far as the sense of emotionless. And actually, Thranduil, when they capture the 12 dwarves, and spoiler alert, okay, Bilbo sets them free, but you, when, the elf, when the dwarf king appeals to Thranduil, there's this sense of compassionlessness. Is that a word? There's no compassion in Thranduil. He's the king of the elves in Mirkwood, and yet there's no compassion. And you discover that there's actually very little love there. I'm not saying he's an evil guy, but he, he doesn't know how to express himself emotionally. And he withholds love. He, he, he can be cruel at times. And there's a particular scene in which Toriel, who's a female elf warrior, forgive me if I'm getting into a little bit of details here, but she, there's this love connection she has with a dwarf, and she loses, I won't say how and such, but she loses her love interest, and she's, she's never experienced this type of love before, and it hurts so deeply, and she looks up at Thranduil, and she says, can you please just take this love away? Take it away. It hurts too much. And she asks this question, why does it hurt so much? And Thranduil surprises me, and he says, because it's real. Because it's real. Now, I, you have to guess. I'm not sure why doesn't he be, why isn't he experiencing love to the depth that most of us would? I don't know, is that the way Dwar uh, elves are, or, or is it because of this loss of love in his past that he doesn't experience love very much, if at all? Now, now, here's why I'm sharing this story with you. Because in our relationship with the Lord, there are many times in which we don't feel love. It is hard for us to connect with this Truly, according to God's word, immense, outpoured love of God. There, there, there's this disconnect. And I've counseled people, and they've had this, even as followers of Jesus, they've, they've had this disconnect from the love of God, their entire walk with Christ. And my heart goes out to them. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're saying, you know what? Man, yeah, that's me. And it's not because... You're like Thranduil, and, and, and you're not an emotional person, but maybe there's some things that have happened in your past 
why is it that this love connection between us and God is so hard? I mean, there's many reasons why we may not feel love. You know, as they say, it's complicated, which generally means perhaps it may be complicated, but what they're more saying is, I don't want to talk about it. Well, tonight, I'm going to talk about it. The problem is we can feel, we can say, I don't feel close to the Lord. It's really hard, okay, next to impossible to even feel his love. Why is that? So I want to take a look at love in the context of marriage as a reflection of Christ's love for us and our corresponding love for him. Now, I'm going to call marriage an eternal metaphor. Over the next 10 weeks, we are actually going to look at 10, excuse me, five eternal metaphors. Now, you may disagree with me on this concept of an eternal metaphor, but here's what I mean by it so that we're on at least the same page. These metaphors are not found in Scripture because God had this really cool truth that he wanted to communicate with us, so he looked out over his creation and he said, ah, there we go. You know, I, I want to talk about how the kingdom of God exp, exp, you know, just grows. And so I'm going to use the metaphor of leaven. I, I get that. that. That's a metaphor. But when it comes to these metaphors, the, I'm going to call them eternal metaphors, whatever you want to call them, regardless, I'm going to call them eternal metaphors, is that what happened is that God actually created marriage with the very intention of it reflecting his love for us. It's not that he loved us and said, what would be a really cool metaphor? I know, marriage, there we go. No, he actually created metaphor for this eternal purpose, okay? Now, I want you to just turn in your Bibles if you want or just listen to this, but in Acts chapter seven, I'm gonna share with you another eternal metaphor that we're going to share later, actually in eight weeks from now, or nine weeks from now, if, if I'm counting correctly. But in Acts 7, 44, this is what it says. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. Remember, it was huge. It was a lot of curtains. It wasn't the temple. It was the tabernacle. It was very mobile. There's the Holy of Holies in it, the holy place, and then the courtyard, and there was just a lot of, a lot of curtains everywhere. Not just the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. This is the tabernacle of the testimony. It goes on and said, it had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Not according to the pattern he was told but according to the pattern he had seen, what did Moses see? Moses saw the heavenly tabernacle. Now, I'm not sure, especially as you go through Revelation, we talk about there's, there's mention of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and the altar of incense. And so, at least in John's visions, he sees these things that we, I'm going to call them types, whether they are just symbols of what, of, of something that is a spiritual reality in heaven or not, it, it is beside the point. But there is a tabernacle 
that Moses saw a heavenly tabernacle and he patterned the earthly tabernacle after it. Now this is also reflected in the concept of the temple. You and I, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the eternal metaphors we're going to look at. And why would I even consider it an eternal metaphor? Again, it's because God takes something that is a spiritual truth and he creates an earthly reflection of it. Other metaphors that we're going to be looking at would be this idea of family, army, body, and I've already mentioned temple. Those are the five we're going to look at. Now, maybe it would be fair for us to ask this question. Why is the book of the Song of Songs or the Songs of Solomon or a canticle, whatever you want to call it, why is it in the Bible? There are two reasons why it is in the Bible. And these two reasons are the very reason why I'm calling this marriage an eternal metaphor. Number one, because it is actually talking about the romance and the sexuality, because it does talk about the woman's breasts, by the way. It talks about romance and the sexuality of their relationship in the context of their marriage. Okay. I, I think that that is very important. I think that marriage, romance, and sex is something that is should be on the table for us to talk about as long as we talk about it correctly and not how the world talks about it. Because God created it, listen now, created it to reflect what many theologians see in this book of the Song of Songs, and that is God's relationship with Israel or the people of God. That romance in the context of marriage, love, romance, and sex are actually a reflection of our relationship with God. That sex in the context of marriage is not just for procreating, as important as that is. Now, I've got five awesome children, and I'm so happy that God blessed me with five children. But sex in the context of marriage is more than that. And it's more than just for personal pleasure. It is like the ultimate expression of loving romance in a relationship. And it is that that we see, a ref we see that in Song of Songs, but that is a reflection of marriage. Excuse me, that in, in marriage is a reflection of our relationship with Christ. Wow, interesting. A gentleman by the name of Ed Shaw, he has this book out called Purposeful Sexuality. Ed Shaw is a pastor of the Church of England. He is a Christian, but he is also same-sex attracted. And he wrestles with that. And he has come to this conclusion that the word of God to him says, and says it very clearly, you are not to have a relationship, a sexual relationship or a marriage with another man. And as he reads the Bible, he sees that very clearly. And so he steps back and he says he will never be able to experience sex in the context of relationships. But he discovered something I'm going to share with you in a moment. But what kind of brought this to a head is that both those who were same-sex attracted and singles would come to him angry with God because they would say to him, an older single woman say, 
it's just not fair that I'm a sexual being, and I will, it, it, at least at this point, and probably maybe for the rest of my life, I'm never going to be able to experience sex in the context of marriage. I just don't feel that that is fair for God to do that to me and make me this sexual being. Why didn't he just take it away? As a matter of fact, many of them asked that God would take that away. Ed Shaw himself asked God, take this away, and yet God chose not to. Why? And that was a very serious question. As a young pastor, he wrestled with this. Why would God do this? And then he began to see something so absolutely beautiful that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, that sex in the context of, of marriage, as well as just the marriage relationship and covenant itself, is this amazing identification with our covenant relationship with God. Now, he uses a very interesting illustration I'm going to share with you. He says it this way. If you never watch the trailer to a movie and then go see it, you will not want to go back and watch the trailer. You're not going to die one day and say, man, I can't believe I missed that trailer to The Hobbit. And someone in God would say, but Mike, you saw the at least I think God would say, Mike, but you saw the movie. I'm not going to say, man, I missed the trailer because I saw the movie. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to miss the trailer. No, this is his point and not point, the point I'm making now. The single person, the same-sex attracted person like Ed Shaw here, he is not going to go to heaven angry with God. I never was able to experience this amazing idea and concept of sex in the con proper context of marriage. I was never able to do that. And he says, because of this, because heaven itself is this amazing ultimate fulfillment of all of that. Now, I have spoken with, and, and to be honest with you, it's been men who have said, I just can't believe that when we go to heaven, I'm not going to be married and I'll never be able to have sex. They're just being blunt, and let me just say, I hear you. I don't get it, but what I did have a glimmer of, and what I want to share with you a little bit more fully today, is that is simply a reflection, even a poor reflection, of the heavenly reality of this amazing, intimate, fully intimate relationship we will have with the Lord. We do not understand the extent to which sin and the fallenness in this world impacts our relationship with the Lord and our ability to even experience love. And, and I'm going to say it will be extremely emotional. Just like romance and sex in the context of a marriage covenant, it's emotional. And being emotional beings created in the media, when we're in heaven, God's not going to take your emotions away. We're going to experience this relationship with God with every fiber of our being to its fullest extent, and it will go far beyond the experience of sex in the context of a marriage relationship. Okay? It is only the trailer. Sex and marriage is only the trailer. So, this metaphor of marriage is used both in Old Testament and New Testament, not just the Song of Songs, 
but it's also used in the New Testament. But let me just, I'm going to expand on it a little bit. Some, as they've read through the New Testament, word it this way, and I'm just going to disagree with them, and I'll tell you why in a moment. They would say that Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, they were married to God, but we in the New Covenant are engaged or betrothed to God. Now, I get that, and I want you to turn to Revelation 19 because we're going to see something there. But please don't be confused by this. But in Ephesians 5, it talks about us being married to him as well. So this idea of marriage and betrothal, both of them are used in the New Testament to reflect this intimate relationship we have with Jesus. Revelation chapter 19. Very, very simple passage, chapter, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 7 and verse 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. This, understand, this is like all of the saints. They're gathered together. They're worshiping God. They're shouting to God. They're singing loudly to God, lifting up their voice. Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's you and me, followers of Jesus Christ, and his bride has made herself ready. The wedding of the Lamb. Verse 9, it says this. Um, then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There is a wedding, which then presupposes, excuse me, I'm spitting all over you, Jim. Sorry about that which presupposes this idea of betrothal. And, and there's so much that I'm not going to get into in the New Testament about this idea. But then on the other hand, you know, there's, there's this idea of romance and, and then the, looking forward to being married. And there is that anticipation in the Christian life of that ultimate relational intimacy with God. And so that's the, that's the betrothal period. But then it's also, we're going to look at it in a moment, it's also the marriage. So here, in the betrothal period, the wedding is about to take place. The wedding supper, then, that takes place after the wedding is going to be taking place here soon just as well. And you get this imagery, then, of Jesus, the bridegroom, rejoicing over his bride, Zephaniah 3.17, it says he rejoices over us with singing. He shouts loudly when he arrives at his betrothed wife's home. And they use the word wife for those who were women who were betrothed and husband as well. I digress. And he shouts and announces his coming just as Jesus will be announcing his coming when he comes again at the end of the age. But it is this anticipation in this age that we look forward to that. And I'm just going to tell you, I think God wants to stir up this sense of anticipation in your heart. It is, heaven is not going to be boring. It is not going to be boring. And I've preached on this many times. But Because you know, growing up, I had that view of you know harps and cherubs and all of that on clouds. And it's like, heaven is nothing like that. This what, what trumps all of this glory in the new heavens and the new earth is the fact that there is no sin that pulls at me in my attempt to draw closer to the Lord. Okay, gone. And that intimacy, instantaneously, 
in my glorified body that just feeling the intensity of that intimacy with Jesus. Wow. Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, now he, Paul moves away from the betrothal metaphor to the marriage metaphor, and, and forgive me, I'm kind of just combining them as Scripture does here, but he says this in Ephesians 5, 29 to 32. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's the concept of united, becoming one flesh. Okay, United to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now listen to this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, he's, he's obviously speaking to husbands here. He spoke to wives. By the way, he was very brief with the wives. He spoke about three or four times longer to the husbands. Can I tell you why? Okay, maybe I don't need to. G guys, sometimes we're a little slow on the uptake. Women get relationships a little bit quicker than us. And maybe that's why Paul spent a little bit more time talking about, hey, husbands, get your act together. This is how you love your wife, okay? And so he's, but he's saying, but I need you to see that I'm not just talking about the marriage relationship. I'm talking about this relationship that Christ has with the church. As the husband feeds and cares for his wife, as he seeks to purify her through the word, building her up, feeding her truth, his goal is to provide for her. That is what Christ does for us. He provides for us. He protects us. He loves us. And so the marriage covenant then mirrors our relationship with Jesus in the new covenant. We are often in both Old and New Testament depicted as being lavishly loved and thereby lavishly loving in return. It's lavish. That's why I believe that worship, church, and we're going to get that in just a moment, but worship, worship should be lavish. I grew up in a very traditional church. I'm not opposed to traditional churches in any way. But in this particular traditional church, emotions were to be very contained. You stood up, you sang a hymn. I love hymns, by the way. Sang a hymn, and then you sat down. You never were physically expressive, though that's throughout the whole Old Testament and New Testament. Things like shouting to the Lord, oh my God, goodness, how sacrilegious, but yet that is exactly what we see in both Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, by the way. There's this sense of David as he's dancing just unhindered before the Lord to express his love for him, and it's lavish. And in this same way, God has lavishly loved us, and thereby we now can lavishly love him back. You love because he first loved you. Okay? And so we, we get this connection, but what if we never feel loved 
and find it difficult to love in return. What if? Why would that be? And what can be done about it? I'm going to give you four reasons and things to do. I want this to be very practical, okay? But I'm going to do it in this context of the metaphor of marriage. For example, number one is you will find it very difficult to feel loved or to have love in your heart for your spouse if the things that come out of your mouth are constantly negative. If they're constantly negative, then that means that you're focusing on the negative in life and probably the shortcomings of your spouse. I'm going somewhere with this. We complain, and that complaining hardens our heart, and it actually strangles the flow of love in our relationship with that person. The same very, the very same thing in our relationship with God. If you don't believe me, turn with me to Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, you've, you've heard this, it's quoted in Hebrews 3. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did the day at Massa in the desert. You know what they did at Meribah and Massa? They complained to the Lord. And that complaint was a demonstration of disinterest, of frustration with God. Focusing on the negative. Hey, three days without water, I get it. Three days without food, I understand. I'd be, I'd be pretty hungry, I'd be pretty thirsty. But there's a better way to handle it. They complained and it choked this love connection with God. And I'm going to just tell you that if in your marriage you do this on a regular basis, you constantly speak negative, you constantly complain, it will choke love out of your relationship with your spouse. It will do it every time. So what is the answer that the psalmist gives us here? What is the remedy for that hardened heart that has focused on complaining? Now, if you're there in Psalm 95, it fills up the first seven verses right before the verse 8 that I read to you. It's worship. Worship is the remedy. You know, just, can I, can I just be really honest with you right now? There are times, and, and part of it is just because I'm fallen, and part of it is because I grew up in a home in which my dad in particular was just, he was a critical man. And when I'm praying, I have found myself, well, Lord, if my wife would just, and if she just, and I find myself complaining, and I just find that there is this ugly that's getting a hold of my heart. And I just say, no, I, ugh. I, I felt like Spider-Man when Venom comes all over him and he turns black, and I guess I feel that way. But it feels like this is, this is controlling me. I hate this. I don't like this. And the answer is immediately, oh my goodness, I'm focusing on this 2 to 3% in my wife. I'm going to focus on the other 95 to 98, 99%. That's what I'm going to do. And I just begin thanking the Lord for my wife. Thank you, Lord. And, and I have a backside. I can tend to be a perfectionist. And, and if my wife were to be really honest with you, she would tell you that that can irritate her sometimes. 
And, and when I'm watching a movie, I'll just... And I'll just start... Because that's what's going on. The drum, man, there's some drums going on in that movie. And I'm paying. And, and my wife looks over and she puts her hand. Michael? Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> it irritates her. When we first met and we sat down and we would order for dinner, it would take me 10 minutes. Because I'm thinking, oh, wow. Oh, I like that kind of steak. But that kind of steak, mm, it's got two more ounces. I might go with that one. Oh, but look at the porterhouse. <laughs> Oh, look at the price, too. You know, and it's like, it would take me, and I'm weighing this asparagus, broccoli, or just carrots. Mm. Mashed potatoes, ooh, or French fries. Mm. I like the way they do their French fries, though. And I would take 10 minutes or more to order. And my wife would just say, okay, we're going out with my dad. And Michael, I'm just, I'm going to, like, challenge you. I want you to make it your goal to order as quickly as you can. <laughs> so what are you really saying? Well, we had a heart-to-heart, honest discussion at that point. And guess what? When we sit down at a meal at a restaurant, I order faster than she does. I look at the meal, pop, pop, okay, that's what I'm going to get. And I, that's true. And so I, I, but for my wife, it would, it would irritate her. And they're just stuff, you know, that irritates us. And if that's what you're going to focus on, it will just squeeze the love in your relationship with your husband out. It'll just squeeze it out. The same thing in your relationship with Jesus. I'm going to talk about this in just a little bit more. I'm going to elaborate on it a little bit more. But if you focus on the negative, it will harden your heart. If you are a complainer, If you go through life and all you do is focus on this problem and this problem and all of, guess what? We live in a fallen world. Live with it. But learn how to focus on the good thing. There is so much good that God has done for you, church. So much. And if we can learn to focus on that and praise him and worship him and just give him all the glory. Thank you, God. Job said this. Naked I came into this world, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God had just permitted the devil to completely ravage his finances. And his ten children died in a horrible accident. I mean, when you have children, wow, you, you can you think about that. And before I was married and had kids, I would read through Job, and I'm just thinking, yeah, okay, Job, good, 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 good for you, yeah. I mean, that's what you should do, yeah. You thank him anyway, it's okay. But man, when you're emotionally engaged and you have kids, it's like, ow, that's hard. But if you choose to complain throughout your life, I mean, if anyone had the right to complain, it would be Job, right? Wow. I mean, you feel when, what is her name, Teriel or whatever the girl's name was in The Hobbit, and she loses her love interest. Yeah, try losing 10. And then the complaining wife, she survives? So anyway, I digress. The truth is, the, tr- the truth is, you know, his wife just had a little bit more character growth. I'm sure 
that God so matured her through all of this process. Okay, that's my way out. But if you're going to focus on the negative in your relationship with God, just know this. You will probably not feel loved, and it will be very hard for you to love him back. Number two, we can, be get, we can get distracted. Little, when, little, when you're distracted and you spend little to no time together, you begin to drift apart. You begin to drift apart, not just physically because you're hardly spending time together, but emotionally. You can start drifting apart and you need to find a way to connect. You know, my heart always went out to Navy men when I would be praying for them. And some of these kids who were like 19 years old, we'd, we'd pray over them and they're heading six months out at sea. Wow. Some of these young guys, they were married six months. That, that's hard. I can't imagine being six months or even a year, goodness, away from my wife, away from my kids. That's so hard. But, wow, what if we did that intentionally? What if we just got so busy in life that we neglected one another? I mean, that's a little different here. We're making the choice. We're choosing not to connect. I read a book many years ago called The Drifting Marriage. That's what it was all about. And it talked about six different levels of intimacy with your spouse. And some of them I never, recreational intimacy. Okay, I'm, I guess that's a thing. But yeah, just, just having fun together, just going out and doing stuff. But I mean, I was in seminary at the time, so there was like very little time to go on dates. But I, I guess we managed. The, the point is this. When we are distracted, when the things, the business, the finances, the stuff of life happens and it pulls us away, we're going to drift in our relationship with our spouse. Find ways to connect. Just find ways to connect. Matthew 6, 21. Listen to this. This is about being undistracted. Except it uses it in a way that maybe will surprise you. Here it is. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Oh, Pastor Mike, where are you going with this? He's talking about eyes. Okay, listen. If your eyes are good, the Greek word that's used here is literally translated single. If your eyes are single. That doesn't mean someone came along one day and poked your other, one of your eyes out. It means that your focus is single. It means that you're not distracted. You're focused. Okay? In your relationship with God. So if you're, because he's using the metaphor of eyes and then he's going to relate it. So if your eyes are good, single, your whole body will be full of light. That's a good thing. But if your eyes are bad, the Greek word here actually means not just bad, but evil, <clears throat> your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, if we are distracted, and, and I know that he's talking about being distracted here because then he goes on to say, hey, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or cling to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Money can be a distraction. Many things can become a distraction. 
it will sap you in love in your relationship with the Lord, just like it will in your marriage. So I'm just going to encourage you, if that's the way you're feeling, that there's so many things going on in your life, in our culture, okay, make sure that every day you get some time with God. And I don't mean just a few minutes. That may not be enough. You may just need to just take some time. And I'm afraid to even put a number to that, but take some time, enough time, so that you can meditate on his truth. Meditate in, in, in prayer. Worship him. Focus on the good. Thank him for these good things in your life. Thank him for your spouse if you're married. There we go. Let God fill you up with his joy. And I'm going to guarantee you that even as hard as life is, it's going to get your focus on him. It's going to be positive, and your heart will begin, begin to be filled with love. Just take time out of your busy day and be with God. And, and, and something else that I have discovered, and this is me personally, but when I share truth with someone, and especially when I share the gospel with them or my personal testimony. It is all about Jesus and what he does for me. And there's something that is ignited in my heart every time that happens. It, it, it just happens. And, and I, I want, after I've shared the gospel, I want, to, I want to share the gospel with someone else. I want to spend some time. I want to worship the Lord right now. God has just stirred that up. That, that just happens. Number three, I need to move on here. Love, when you love in words only and not in action. Now, words are, excuse me, words are important. I mean, after all, that's what worship is. Words are important. They're just not enough. 1 John 3.18 says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In other words, do it honestly, truthfully. Don't placate. Do it because you want to truly serve. Action. Church, we serve Jesus. How are you serving Jesus? What does that look like for you? You know, just practically in my relationship with my wife, there was, several years ago, I wanted to surprise her with an anniversary gift. I can't even remember. It was probably this, our second year anniversary. I'm trying to remember. And maybe our third. We, uh, I, I, I built something for her. I went over to a friend of mine's house on numerous occasions, and I worked on a bookshelf. We still have that bookshelf, by the way. If you come up our stairs, come up our stairs, you can go this way to the pink room, or what I lovingly call the Pepto-Bismol room, or you can make a U-turn and go down the other way, which is on the right, the master bedroom, blah, blah, blah. At the end of that hall, there's two bookshelves, a white one, and I didn't build that one. But there is a, another one, and it says, I carved the name Mary at the top. And I did my best, you know. I didn't have a whole lot of, 
super cool tools that some of you guys have, I've seen use. But I worked hours and hours on doing this. And, and here's what I discovered. I was so anxious to be able to give that to her. And it actually, if we had an argument and I worked on that, it changed my heart. I, I, I don't know. It, it changed my heart. I loved working on this, and I was putting time into it. And as I was doing this, I mean, in essence, I was serving my wife. And it was a physical, hands-on demonstration of my love. And I was just hoping that that's how she would see it. And I think she did. And we, we kept it all of these years. So I, I would, we've been married 38 years, so we've had it 36, maybe 35. So I think she likes it. And at least does a good job of holding the books, right? <laughs> But when we do this in our relationship with the Lord, when we're serving him, when we realize that when I'm giving a, and I'm going to use a biblical concept here, giving a, cold, a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, and Jesus used that example, I am doing it in his name. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. That's serving. Just realize that when we are sacrificing, when we are serving, we are serving others, yes, but we are ultimately serving the Lord. Church, this is why the gospel is so central in everything that we do because that is the epitome of God's love demonstration, this love relationship that he has for us. He laid down his life for us. God took on human flesh, which blows my mind, he was willing to take Mike Curtis's sins, yuck, that is God himself who's completely pure and holy took my sins to the point where Paul says this, that he became, and I don't get this completely, he became sin for us. When the, my sins, when Mike Curtis's despicable sins that I would rather not talk about, by the way, were placed on Jesus, Jesus so identified himself with those sins being his. Paul words it this way. He became sin for us. Wow. Still wrapping my mind around that one. But that is the degree to which Jesus loved me, that Jesus loved you. Now, because you're not God, and if you think you are, please see me afterwards, but because you're not God... You will never truly understand the full extent of Christ's love for you and him laying down his life for you. That God would do that for me. That is God serving us. And when we serve him, it builds this love relationship. And then lastly, because I am out of time, expectations. That is unrealistic expectations because unrealistic expectations focuses generally on self. Anticipation focuses on promises. Expectation says, okay, I expect this and that and the other thing from God. But what if I don't get it? What if I take Psalm 91, which actually says a thousand will fall at your side, ten thousand at your a thousand will fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. What if it comes near me? What if I do lose someone that I love? That's near me. 
That hurts. So I'm going to word it this way. We balance God's promises. God realizes we live in a fallen world. He's not going to keep every single bad thing from happening in your life. He's not going to do that. That's not what the psalm means. But here's what it does mean. That God, that his intention as a husband for his wife, he will protect you. But from God's perspective, there are certain times in which, because his ultimate goal is not for your comfort and for you to live like 100 years, that actually is not his goal. His goal for you is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if we were to prioritize this, 100 years, image of Christ, God's going to go with the image of Christ. So there are times in which there's certain character qualities or certain things or skills or any number of things God needs to build into your life. And the absolute best way to do it is for you to go through the fire. Church, as much as he loves you, he's going to allow you to go through the fire. And it will burn and it will hurt. Our problem is God's priorities are different than my priority. I want happiness. I want to have fun. I'm going to serve you, God, but okay, like, let's do, I'm going to serve you because I've heard that that is like the best way to live your life. The, if you want to be happy, then serve Jesus. Okay, if that's your goal, could you please talk to one of the martyrs? On second thought, that's going to be pretty hard, won't it? But how, I mean, they, they were willing to sacrifice their lives for Jesus. What? Wow. Maybe my goal in life isn't to be happy. But my goal in life is simply to live this surrendered life, no matter what it looks like, for Jesus. I would say that that is the best answer or pathway to happiness. But... Your happiness is not God's goal. That's not a real popular topic to preach in our day. But God's goal is for me to be transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. And so God will bring me through the fire. And he will bring you through the fire at times to accomplish that. But here are the, here's the anticipation I have. And it's not just that all of those sufferings one day will be completely gone, but that the sufferings are actually accomplishing God's glory in my life. I am beginning, believe it or not, Pastor Mike's actually beginning to look a little bit more and more like Jesus each day because of the sufferings that he goes through. And that then is God's goal, and I need to make that goal myself. I'm not going to jump into suffering. I'm not saying that. But I'm going to be willing to accept it like Jonah. You give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God did something in Job's life. And I trust in his wife's life too. But God did something that could not be accomplished other than what we read about in Job 1 and 2 and the tragedy he went through. So my anticipation, I don't have expectations because that focuses on what I want, but anticipations of God's promise. This is going to work out for my good. I don't see it right now, but my anticipation is in his promise. That is what he's going to do. And if his goal is to protect me, but he realizes there's a higher priority, then he will allow that moment for the enemy 
to get into that hedge of protection. That's a phrase from Job 1. Into that hedge of protection around my life. And it will hurt. But something amazing is going to happen that could not have happened any other way. That's God's promise. And it's that promise that I hold on to. It's not just for the protection. But is it all things work together for my good? So, as we struggle in this relationship with God, and maybe today you are feeling like you don't necessarily feel loved, no matter how hard you try, then I'm going to suggest, I hope you wrote down some of these ideas. There's four, there are four. I'm going to actually get to one more next week, and we're going to spend the whole time on it. But I'd like you to just stand with me right now. I want to pray for you. Because some of you are going through not just a dry time in your life, because this season has been going on and on and on. And I believe Jesus just wants to love on you. And I believe that God allows us to experience feelings in that love relationship with Christ. Maybe not all the time. In heaven, I believe we will. But here on earth, maybe not. But I believe God wants you to not just know that you are loved. I do believe he wants you to feel loved. I do believe he wants you to walk in that intimacy 